Folks, I love this conversation and I cannot wait for you to hear it. So I'm going to DM our acclaimed guest writer, Soroya Nadia McDonald, her first tweet, and we're going to get into it. Here we go. This is from uh, March 28th, 2022. <laughs> uh, all right. I love this. Uh, some rando on Instagram is attempting to insult me by calling me single and overweight. And honey, I've been in this business a long time. I'm basically 100% rhino hide. Plus, I just whoop breast cancer's ass. <laughs> so forgive me, but you're going to have to come harder than that. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> And that's got uh, 13 replies, 11 retweets, and 1,092 likes. This was in response to some, you know, insults and harassment that I was getting right. uh, for the response that I wrote about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars. I think I might have said something like this wasn't gallantry. Yes, that's This exactly. was narcissism. That's it. That's it. You know, when I basically said that there there wasn't a good reason for Will Smith to do this. And, you know, beyond that, that, you know, this was really kind of evident of his own sort of narcissism. Right. And in response to that, you know, we had commenters both like on my own, you know, Instagram page, but also on Anscape saying, you know, that I got this wrong um, and not only that, but that, you know, I'm overweight, that I'm basically sort of personally attacking me right. um, when they didn't agree with what I wrote. Right. But, you know, I started out covering sports when I was 18 and and I dealt with like a lot of sexism in the form of being underestimated about like my qualifications, yeah. being hit on yeah. by colleagues by readers asking what in the world a woman was doing working on the sports desk. Like I've, I've heard it all. Yeah, right. Yeah. But you know, I'm 38 now. Right. <laughs> I've, I've been through a lot. You've been through cancer recently. Uh, you mentioned that in the tweet. You know, when I was first diagnosed in April of 2021, I kind of struggled with whether or not to say anything at all. Um, I didn't really want to. And then I realized I felt like I was going to have to, because I was going to have to take time off from work. And so rather than just sort of like disappearing, like I owe it to my readers to at least let them know what's going on. There are so many ways that screws with your head and your self-confidence and even just your your sanity. Yeah, I remember one of your tweets, you said basically having cancer is and then trying to deal with it is like just basically feeling like you want to throw up all the time. You're just constantly dealing with that. Oh, God. Yeah, especially when I was going through chemo, there was just so much nausea but that yes but then even before that there's just the nausea from anxiety yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think basically from the moment i was sort of like diagnosed you know i had biopsy and then i had another biopsy and then i had another biopsy you know but basically from that moment where you know the first kind of radiology tech says so this lump that we found in your breast is cancerous to you know you are sitting on an operating table, uh, you know, counting down, you know, while the anesthesia takes effect. Wow. Um, like, it's just impossible, at least it was for me, not to have anxiety about the fact that I had this thing in my body that was trying to kill me. 
and the way my anxiety tends to show up is is with nausea. <laughs> yeah. So the tweets are super interesting. Has the new group of people on Twitter become a part of your life because of your experience with cancer? Like, what has that experience of tweeting? Oh, definitely. About? Okay. It did, and so yes. So like, people found me. Yeah. As <laughs> so I began tweeting, you know, I had other people who reached out to me, whether it be just tactics for managing the nausea or like little tips about you know when and how to take zofran so that like it would ease your nausea without giving you a headache and there was a person you know who had been following me previously but who it turned out was also a breast cancer survivor and so and we started talking you know and she dm'd me uh her phone number and so you know because she was like i know you know how this gets remember you know there was one night where i was just having like terrible terrible stomach pain and she was like this is gonna sound really weird but like just try it she was like just try like plain lays potato chips (laughs) (laughs) and it helped wow and so i was i was really grateful just for the community that i found um on twitter you know it's something that i try to to pay forward you know so it, you know you just didn't have that sort of in-person support system that often exists within oncology wings i found that you know a lot of that support um online and i was really grateful for that Oh, okay. So this is from August 16th of 2018. Yep. Uh, my sister, DC Tortorati, and I went to see Aretha some years back at Strathmore. Of course, it was something else. Not only was she note perfect, but she stopped in the middle of the show and refused to keep singing until the venue got the air conditioning situation <laughs> right. <laughs> and because of previous experiences in the music business, Aretha was very particular about how and when she would be paid. And she brought her purse on stage and kept it where we could see it. We stand so hard. But what I remember most about that concert is feeling tears running down my face when she sang. Not just because she was so fantastic and because she's Aretha goddamn Franklin, (laughs) but because she felt so familiar. This was about Aretha feeling familiar, like a family member. And yes, she died. She died that day. Part of what was so wonderful about her is she was this musical genius who had her own language and rhythms and style that came to to be considered like the best goddamn singer that this fucked up country has ever produced. Right, right. <laughs> when Aretha sang, you you hear the entire Great Migration in her voice from Alabama all the way up to Detroit. You know, so much of her story could just as easily fit into the warmth of other suns. She's not exceptional in that way, right? She's part of a community of Black people, you know, who started leaving the South during Jim Crow um, because they were trying to to basically escape the terrorism um, of those places and the poverty to go elsewhere, right? Whether it's Kansas City, whether it's Chicago, whether it's Detroit, but also, you know, to get out of these communities where they were basically sort of being forced into sharecropping for white 
landowners. This is after slavery, right? This is after the Emancipation Proclamation. This is after the end of the Civil War. But who would still face retaliation from mobs just for leaving town because they wanted to hang on to that, uh, if they didn't have free labor anymore, um, about as close to free as they could get. It's very similar situation with Toni Morrison, right? Like that's how she ends up growing up in Ohio. And it's very much a situation where, you know, it's not like the family can sort of like have a moving van parked in front of the house, right. you know, and telegraph that they are leaving. Yeah. Um, it's it's secret. Wow. Uh, they're not even necessarily all on the same train together. But yeah, there is something about, you know, the way Aretha speaks, mm-hmm. the way she, her life experiences, uh, color, then, you know, the way she behaved as a performer, right? With with carrying her purse on stage. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so because she's been, that like, you don't do that unless you've been robbed. Right, right. <laughs> to insisting being paid in cash. She was doing this up through, you know, the 2000s. Right. <laughs> the 2000s. Right. You know, those those lessons really stuck with her. And they reminded me of this Black couple who were neighbors of my parents. Do you want to read those two tweets? Oh, yeah, sure. More Twitterverse after the break. Welcome back to Twitterverse. I'm going to DM another tweet. So, yeah. So for most of my childhood in North Carolina, I spent my days after school and weekends with a Black couple who lived not far from my parents. They were from North Carolina, moved to New York, and had adult lives, and then came back to North Carolina in retirement. They were basically adopted grandparents. Their names were Gladys and Winfield Williams. We called them Gladys and Uncle Jimmy. Gladys, among other things, taught me how to eat fried fish with bones in it and generally just how to be a Black person. She spoiled me. She made sure I played with other Black kids who didn't go to my school or who weren't in my classes. She had this affect and this speaking voice that was very similar to Aretha in a lot of ways. Gladys didn't take any mess. Gladys died the summer after my freshman year of college, she had brain cancer. And years later, here I was at this concert with Aretha Franklin singing. And all I could think about was Gladys. And I realized in that moment that Aretha, for me, had shifted from being this abstraction, from this legend whose songs I would try to sing, but who I knew so little about personally, from a celebrity into an auntie. And so I stood there watching her sing Natural Woman, and I just wept. And there was this massive feeling of catharsis because even if Gladys was gone, there was part of her that lived on in this fantastic woman who I didn't actually know at all. And of course, somewhere in your lizard brain, you know the day is going to come that she's not going to be here anymore. I used to get so panicked whenever I would see reports that Aretha was sick. Anyway, now that day's come, and for me, it's like saying goodbye to two people, two incredible, lovely Black women who deeply affected my life instead of just one. And so all there really is left to say is thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad we had as much time with her as we did. 
Do you remember writing that? I mean, it's a really beautiful piece, I think. I don't, honestly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still, I mean, I do now. I, I can definitely, like, the emotions came right back. Right. Uh, this comes from having done this job so long. Right, right. <laughs> you sort of develop a rhythm. You kind of, like, pour everything that you have into a piece, and then it publishes, and then you move on. Yeah. <laughs> Twitter is basically, um, you know, as much as it is a a medium for writing that same cycle exists for me it's just sped up yes every once in a while like a stranger will come up to me like in new york they know who i am and i do not know who they are right. and usually one of the first things they will say is i just love your twitter yeah and i really just want to say i'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> because i'm yeah it's a little weird <laughs> i mean this oh god this happened to me at um oh gosh not manhattan theater club this happened to me at another off-broadway theater and so I'm standing outside the theater and this woman comes up to me and she's like, I just want to say, I just think you're fabulous. And it was very strange because like I'm standing outside and then there's like Jonah Hill, actual famous person. Right. It's just the weirdest experience. <laughs> I don't know. Twitter is just kind of where I, I get out a lot of the stuff that I feel like I need to get out in order to be able to write. Uh -huh. uh, okay, this is from July 2nd, 2020. Yep. Um, and it says, my name, McDonald, is the name of poor black North Carolina tobacco sharecroppers. My father and my aunts and uncles grew up in a series of shacks that didn't have indoor plumbing. They missed weeks of school harvesting tobacco, toiling in the hot late summer sun. This is uh, part of a thread I was linking to uh, a feature um, that someone had written on me. Uh, the writer's name is Lila Bromberg. Uh, she's now a sports writer for the Hartford Current. Um, and she went through um, a like, journalism training program. Um, and it's one that I did when I was in college. It's called the Sports Journalism Institute. Right. And so as part of that boot camp, they, you know, one of the things they do is they have the students uh, sometimes write about uh, alumni. And so Lila wrote about me. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, first of all, I'm not used to people like writing about me because I'm not used to being the subject of things because I'm usually, you know, I'm the one who is writing about other people. And this would have been like about two months roughly uh, after um after i was named as a as a finalist for the pulitzer for criticism which is amazing um and so that's what they were like that's what the peg was i guess <laughs> right. for this feature and so that just got me thinking about not just my own journey and my life but also just generationally you know my father my grandmother and even farther back than that it's just like an extreme jump in just two generations. You know, I, I'm, I'm living a very different life uh, than my grandmother was when she was my age. Right. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being so open and so candid. Thank you, Gabe. It was so nice talking to you. Uh -huh.